and I am excited to introduce our guest today, friend of the show, author of the best Bitcoin book you could possibly read. And if you have not, this is your homework assignment for the week, the seventh property, Bitcoin and the Financial Revolution. Eric Yakes, welcome back to the show. What's going on, fellas? Oh, I wait, I missed the most important thing. My fellow mom's basement dweller. Yeah, I saw that on the tweet. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Eric, how goes it, man? I, I gave you a light introduction for our audience. What else would you say about yourself to let them know who the heck you are? That's pretty much it, man. You know, like my, my back pants and it was kind of like beginning of 2020. I decided to jump into this industry and I, you know, I wrote the book kind of geared people with a background in finance and ethics, but it ended up spreading pretty widely. It's been used as a resource by a lot of different people. I kind of geared it to be very holistic in terms of what I I cover, I cover how the banking system works. I get a little bit more technical and point works and give some explanations around that as well as I want to be pretty measured with what I was not too much of like a moon boy with it. Let me just say like, hey, look, you know, Bitcoin's not perfect. We got a long run ahead of us. I'll get there. But uh, well, and yeah, and that's pretty much it. Other than that, I'm just kind of working up a business and, and I talk to you guys on the internet. All right. What were we t- talking about? We're talking oh, about yeah. what's your Monica, favorite Kanye West part? properties. Ooh, the Kanye West ones? Just like in general, what's your favorite Kanye West quote? Okay. (laughs) Well, you said recently, I tweeted it. That was like, gap deal fell through. And uh, I want to take financial advice from people who are poorer than me. Yeah, yeah, that one was solid. I really liked that one. He was on like CNBC and and you could tell like Kanye just rolled into like a board meeting and was just saying credit to a bunch of board execs and they're like, we can't deal with this guy. And then he was just like, yeah, you're all poorer than me. <laughs> and that, yeah, that was a good one. I love that. Let, let's clue P in because P actually can't read. This is a surprise to most people, but he he did not develop that skill. It's quite necessary. Oh, I know how much P hates this, but I'm going to let this let us rock like this now. Walk, walk P through a little bit of the six properties that are found just in money historically. Yeah. Yeah, so there's like, you know, there's it, it is somewhat of a vague concept, but you know, there's just speaking like six commonly accepted properties of money, and that's you know, scarcity is the primary, durability, wide widely accepted, which is kind of like the last one that all the other ones are dependent on. Portability can be easily moved. Fungibility, it's like for like between you know each consecutive unit of it. And divisibility can be easily grouped and divided. So those are the six commonly accepted. And, you know, money throughout history was ultimately, it was any sort of good that naturally emerged in like private markets. And when we look at primitive forms of money, these comparisons are really obvious because there was a lot of different primitive forms of money that we can assess based around that. Nick Zabo actually did a lot of great writing. His piece on Nakamoto Institute shelling out is like a really great review on how those distinctions were made between different communities over time. And, you know, people gravitated to maintain these properties that allowed them to function as money well. And, you know, the argument that I make in the book around seventh property is that, you know, we kind of have this general framework and, you know, some people have different ideas of what that framework is and the definitions are somewhat loose. But, you know, one thing that is certain is when we look at money in the future, it should have a property of immutability and we should be viewing 
looking at it from that perspective. So when we look at all these qualities and characteristics of Bitcoin and what make it so valuable, you know, is the, uh, the decentralization of the mining network or of the nodes or, you know, whatever framework you want to look at it from, it's ultimately like three kind of primary functions in which financial intermediaries today get involved with money. And that's, you know, it's storage, it's airfiction and, you know, transfer in different forms. So if we can have those functions decentralized, which is what Bitcoin does, then we can ultimately achieve property of immutability. So, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or something 50, 100 years from now, or we have some new technology emerge, whatever it is, within that framework of, you know, what defines something as a monetary property, I think that we should be including that concept of immutability because we've innovated upon on that. We've now created something that not only is, you know, immutable, but it's actually even more efficient in forms of money because typically throughout history, that was a trade-off. And we don't have to deal with that shit off any, anymore now. And, you know, that's like a true innovation of Bitcoin. Pete, do you feel as though you now understand money better? 100%. Will you stop, will you stop wasting your money buying dog food for yourself? Well, I do have a dog. Oh, for myself. For yourself. No, you got to feed the dog, man. I got to feed the dog. My wife did put a label on the dog food that says dog food, not for human consumption, which I was offended by and felt attacked. But she also put that on Damn, her dude, shoes. you eat dog food? <laughs> eat dog food is a stretch. I have, <laughs> I have partaken of the sacrament, which is the dog food. Yeah, you know, the I mean, guy who will host a dinner party for you <laughs> and then you'll show up and you'll be like, this is so delicious. Like, what is this? And like, I'll fin finish what you're eating and then I'll tell you what it is. And then he'll walk you through every dish and it'll be some assortment of bug protein, dog food. And then of course, like the tackiest move of all. Oh yeah. You know, those, those chicken wings you were eating. Yeah. Those, those were vegan chicken wings. No, that, that's the worst one. No, that's none of that's going to happen. Of all. Anyone who. What is, is that uh, even? It's a vegan chicken wing. Dude, have you, has, has this never happened to you? I got really mad at a friend who did this, but like they ordered a bunch of Chinese food and they got orange chicken and I ate it. I was like, oh my God, this is delicious. This is delicious. And it was vegan. Like it's fake meat. They just press it out of a mold. Oh, it's, oh, it's like impossible burger, but for chicken. Sure. I didn't yeah. even know that existed. Yeah. I mean, cool. Yeah. P served it to me once. I was very upset. You loved it. I well, what not. was it? What happened to the Impossible Burger CEO? He rested at a. It was like an SEC. Oh, he ate someone's face. It I tweeted about it forever ago. He, it was the oh, it was CFO. CFO, that's what. And it was. he was, I think, like tripping balls at a music festival, and just like took a chomp out of someone's face. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is that did not happen. <laughs> this is a real story, P. Did you Jesus not hear about Christ. this? No, I did not. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I. I tweeted about it. I was like, I'm going to take, I'm going to go eat an impossible burger just as that happened. That makes sense John to me. I would 100% do that. Arrested for biting a man's nose. Douglas somebody Ramsey. said, somebody said, no, he bite the nose. Not bit. He bite the nose. But. Oh, I believe it was after a football game, not a music festival. So he must have been drunk, not high. These are the details that you come to this show to hear. Well, about. I just, what I'm curious about is like, what mind state do you have to be to, in a drunken fight, think, let me use my teeth and get my teeth involved in this fight? Because that to me is like my biggest fear is having a tooth knocked out. So 
My question is if you either of you are fighting dirty, That's exactly like, what is your... I'd like to be an animal. <laughs> so I Eric, if he I think this animals. is I think it's 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 I'm glad we talked about this because what I want to know is how does Bitcoin fix this? I'm looking inquisitively at the camera. The case beyond me. Mm -hmm. And the nose biting specifically. I, I don't know. Honestly, I think Bitcoin's probably going to create more guys who are biting noses at SEC flips, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But um, Interesting. Yeah, I think in terms of the... I don't know. I mean, the guy sounds like a cool guy. He probably was just like, didn't give a fuck. Yeah, I, I have no idea how Bitcoin is going to fix official me. And like, honestly... My take on that shit is like, if you can create something that tastes exactly the same as a ribeye to me and I know no difference, then I mean, nutritional quality is something that I'm kind of indifferent to it. I don't really give a shit. I don't think it's there yet, but I'd be down. Fascinating. So would you eat? Okay, let me ask you this, Eric. Taste, nutrition, like is the same as a regular beef steak, but would you rather eat a 3D printed version of a ribeye or a cricket protein version of the ribeye dude i gotta go with i don't know that's tough i gotta go with 3d printed crickets are just fucking disgusting i couldn't do that did you so we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday and, and i'd love your thoughts on this but there i guess was uh a story coming out of the netherlands where government officials are going to grade school students in their classroom and starting to explain which bugs are edible and which bugs have high nutritional content. And the sort of pontification off of this is that it could lead to eventually in like 20 years down the line, the government having an easier time convincing a generation to switch from real meat to bug meat because they've started to sort of put it in their minds from such an early age that these are acceptable things. Are you comfortable with the government brainwashing children into eating bugs? And what would you do if your future children came home one day and asked you to stop eating meat and start eating crickets with them? Dude, I, I even, there's like this whole world going on. Like I don't even fucking understand how any of this stuff happens or where it happens or, or what's going on. But yeah, my kids aren't going to eat bugs. Yeah. My kids probably aren't going to be in a public school either. Interesting. Are, are, did you go to public school? No, no, I didn't. And you know, obviously it's like, you know, it's a luxury for a lot for, you know, pretty much most people. I think it's like, the percentage of private schools I saw the stat not too long ago, but it's like, I want to say it was like less than 10% or something like that. I don't know. It was funny. I actually had a tweet kind of along these lines. Yeah. I think it was for high school. I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but yeah, I actually had a tweet about this because like, I know that in, you know, Bitcoin world, I see tweets all the time talking about how they want to, you know, homeschool their kids and whatnot. And my tweet, I was just like, I mean, my kids definitely, aren't going to be homeschooled i think like the benefits of like you know being involved in school forming social hierarchies like as a social hierarchy probably much better life skills than like what you learn in terms of like history and if you learn a lot more early on or not like that's one of the big trade-offs but yeah i mean like my biggest you know i'm not against like 
I don't know. I dated this girl one time who was in like the IB program or whatever school. You know, it's technically like that's like a public program. And like, like all the kids I know who went to the best colleges weren't kids who went to private schools. They went into like IB programs at public schools. And so it's like, yeah, that might be pretty ideal. And, you know, I think also in terms of areas like that, I don't even know how much the indoctrination exists just as, you know, those programs, they are so busy actually learning, you know, things that are valuable that I feel like they're not pushing nearly as much crap. But like, I, I, I don't really know. Any, yeah, I probably don't want kids in public school, though. It's going to be a crazy world in like 20 years of what they're being taught. Unless we have our, you know, Bitcoin takes over, then who knows what public schools could be like. P, I know you guys have a bun in the oven as well. So are you guys planning to, to send well, up? Yes, it's news to me. <laughs> oh, 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 surprise. I can't imagine. I mean, I... I haven't looked into public school systems these days. I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to imagine that they are up to the standards that I would have. So probably not. But I do think the socialization aspect of, of public schools is important. But I want to bring this back to Bitcoin. And I'm curious, Eric, we, you know, we, go, we start the show off with news and notes every day. And I don't know if you were listening earlier, but I'm curious what news that has come out in the Bitcoin space has caught your attention the most? Like, what are you, what are you the most invested in, in terms of dominant Bitcoin news stories right now? Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. BitMEX is one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade, actively donating to developers and putting out some of the most cited research articles. What you might not know is that BitMEX recently launched a brand new spot exchange and mobile app that takes the experience of buying and holding to the next level. We know that, especially in uncertain market conditions, you need an exchange that is trustworthy and innovative. Sign up at bitmex.com today, check out the BitMEX blog for some great market insights, and stay tuned to our podcast for more from their team. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily like news stories, but I've been spending a lot of time over the past, you know, pretty much since the summer is just reading into, you know, how I think like your Bitcoin, you know, quote unquote banking systems will build out. So I actually released a research piece in, what was that? And, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion. Well, I guess to start it, you know, it was kind of back in July that I started digging into this research. And I think the next big step in, you know, what I'm going to be focusing on. But, you know, we a lot of people 
put together like here's how bitcoin works here's title implications all that there's not much information out there around how is this ecosystem actually going to build because bitcoin can't do everything bitcoin can be a bear for everything but in terms of all that functionality we need an entire financial system that's going to re-emerge in this area and i think that that's going to be very fundamentally different from what we're familiar with historically and uh, you know i I was kind of researching the practical side of it and being like, okay, what companies exist? How do they function? How does the Lightning Network work? How is that going to create different financial markets that exist on top of Bitcoin? And then, you know, when I was getting into that and I was kind of like picking around on Twitter and seeing what people are saying, there, there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of debate still, and there should be because it's very theoretical, but there's a lot of debate around just like, like the general theory of, uh, you know, what would what does credit look like on Bitcoin? Will it even exist? If it exists, what will it look like? Will there be fractional reserves? All these different types of things. And, uh, you know, I think there was a piece Nick Carter released this summer and then Stefan Levera had kind of a response to it. And they're kind of more higher level discussions around credit. And I, you know, I think from a lot of the, a lot of the public forum that was happening, there was, how do I say, you know, there, I, I, People didn't have a very complete understanding. So like what I released in September was kind of discussion of that and saying like, you know, here's what I think a, a full reserve system could look like. And here's what I think a, a fractional reserve system could also look like. And, and, and to caveat that, I'm thinking about like when I say fractional reserve, you know, there's ways that that ultimately exists. It's, you know, within the banking model, which is something that historically we have pretty limited examples of because governments kind of control banking institutions but this concept of free banking is something where we do have observations and we do have periods of history where we can say like okay there was a system where the government didn't heavily on currency issuance and that actually just all happened through banks and those banks decided how much gold they wanted to keep in reserves and then they lent beyond those amounts and some failed like you know in my book Look, I talked to them where eventually we had a central bank and that creates this persistent incentive for credit to continually expand until eventually the entire system crumbles. But when you look at free banking systems, the ones that were like pretty pure, which is also hard to find because they typically aren't. If it's like you imagine a situation where it's unregulated, banks are allowed to issue as much, I'll explain a term, fiduciary media. And that's any sort of, um, if you're a bank and you you have gold and rather than issue gold to everybody, a big innovation was to issue paper receipts on top because they're much easier to trade. So they're much more fit for transactions. And then once you start issuing paper beyond the amount that you have in reserves, that's when you would call it fiduciary media. You're now expanding the money supply. You don't just have one-to-one -one backing for every paper receipt that you issue. And it was interesting is that when you look at some of these systems that were like generally free, weren't heavily regulated, even if there wasn't a central bank or anything like the U S is a good example of like an overly regulated system. There were all these laws that were still enforcing all these perverse incentives within the U S free banking system. So on collateral laws were one of the big ones. And, you know, it was like, we had all these banks that were within various states and there was no central bank in the U S for about a century, maybe a little bit longer, but different states had separate regulations and we had banks within those who were all issuing their own notes and these states heavily regulated that and kind of forced these bond collateral laws on top of banks where they'd say like okay if you guys want to issue you know fiduciary media in this state then you have to use our bonds as your collateral 
and therefore the collateral got all fucked up and uh, there there was issues that happened too with wars going on and things like that. but anyways that system did not function well and there were a ton of problems that emerged from that system but what's largely looked at one of the systems that actually functioned pretty well was the scottish free banking system and that was kind of like 17th or 18th 19th century and uh, you know that was for a period of about a century well it wasn't perfect and there were regulations that were existing on top of it uh, saw a pretty well functioning system for nearly history it was only during the napoleonic wars that it really had issues and that's just because when you're in a banking system and there's a war and all the governments around the world start printing a money and they start you know removing their gold standards that makes it kind of very hard for you to ultimately run a functioning banking system when you have to compete at an international level with something that just freely is printing currency and uh, but anyways the point is that with this banking system things actually function pretty well and that was under a fractional reserve. And if you allow it to function in a market, there's natural limits that are imposed market on how much that, you know, quote unquote, fiduciary media, aka credit is extended through these banks. And if you allow the market to say, like, if there's, you know, 100 banks that exist in an economy, and one of them gets too crazy, and it ultimately fails, and there is no bailout, then these systems function very differently than the more hazard that we have that exists within our current system. And the banks will act under the assumption that when they will fail. So without getting into like all the nitty gritty and details, that's kind of like the idea around the theory where, I was, okay, so people need to understand that fractional reserve while being a bad thing, it's not necessarily the devil. And there are situations where it's left up to free enterprise that it's actually functioned decently well. And then more of an ethical argument of whether or not should be allowed to do that in the first place. Are you allowed to make a promise to people that they can redeem their notes one to one with you while you're actually, you know, printing more notes than the amount of reserves that you have? And you like, there's, you know, Austrians will get into the ethics of the debate. It's important to have those conversations. But I, what I focus more on is what will we see? And what we do see is that you know, history, we've never had any sort of persistent full reserve system that's ever emerged. We've had banks and large institution groups that have been relegated to being like a full reserve where they're really just, you know, a customer who is providing transaction services, but they're not providing any services with notes. We've like seen that in history, but we've never really seen like a full reserve. There's never been a full reserve system in history. So that's one is the expectation that'll emerge on Bitcoin is exception to history. There's been two later, but there's plenty of arguments to why that point. And then on the other end, it's like, okay, well, it's also somewhat of an exception to history, but that's kind of emerged a lot more frequently. And, uh, and then, you know, I've been talking for a while here, but the idea is based, I go into like, you know, some of the trade between how I see these things emerging and how ultimately we're likely to probably see both, I think, emerge. And I'm still digging in research around that. But when you look at the problems that Bitcoin solves, and then big lightning network and Bitcoin enabled by, you know, on-chain asset issuance. I see the ability of having economically viable full reserve institution emerge at scale, a probable event. It doesn't mean that there won't be any sort of fractional reserve, emerge, but, but when you look at all these different efficiencies within the system, how quick, how much information transparency we now have that was never had before 
foreign banking, the possibility of full reserves. But anyways, I'm kind of digging into a lot of areas around that. And I think the news that's relevant to that is, you know, that was announced back in March this year and uh, Reese deployed their test net. I think that'll be a big step for our asset issuance ultimately in Bitcoin. And then, you know, I'm digging into like so, or, or how some of these what structures are of going that? to work and I was just saying, can you go yeah, into, into so it's how like Taro, Taro might affect that? Um, yeah, totally. So the, the big question is like within this digitally native ecosystem, how will we see the concept of a note ultimately emerge and why? Because if we can transact Bitcoin with Lightning, that is a very efficient way of directly actually transferring so like this antiquated concept of needing reserves and then have a more efficient form of notes that exists on top of it that's that's kind of an antiquated concept when it's like well we can actually just have physical settlement across lightning or, or physical settlement across lightning so why would any sort of institution need to issue a note and i think one of the big key aspects of that right now is if you look at it's because Fediment is something that allows you by depositing at a mint and receiving their quote unquote notes or tokens that will enable you to have privacy. That's one way notes will get issued is because people are going to want the privacy benefit. And, uh, and then, you know, if people also want to have, you know, various asset issuance that occur through something like Taro and, you know, Taro stable coins are just something that I think is kind of like a bridge to the, but if we have forms of asset issuance that are directly on chain they can be backed by bitcoin and there's haven't fleshed out exactly how i think that'll emerge the idea is that we're going to have these like tokens or notes that really emerge in some form if they are emerging then that means there's going to be institutions who ultimately create more notes than the amount of bitcoin that ultimately backs those notes in some form and uh, and just how all that's going to play out and what incentive they have back that I think is a really important question that needs to be answered. And, you know, so like one thing that I think is a strong argument against the idea that fractional reserve institutions will be able to exist if it was a purely Bitcoin native ecosystem is, you know, this concept of like flash loans, because very efficient way leveraging capital um, through these pools that we'll see, you know, in like the DeFi. I think if that, when that concept is on Bitcoin, we're effectively going to have people there and they're going to say, okay, you know, we have proof of reserves. So we Wait, sorry, have Eric. this way of can looking, you if you have like a Bitcoin bank. Can you define what a flash loan, it sounds like there's a slight delay between what I'm saying and what you can hear, but can you define for the audience what a flash loan is and how it relates to what you're talking about? Yeah, totally. So the idea is basically like, it's an innovative concept that came out of DeFi that like, because we have everything operating within one payment layer, we actually make these instantaneous loans where if you have an arbitrage opportunity, which audience is familiar with, but it's just like a, you know, a riskless transaction. If you have a way where you risklessly make a profit, then you could actually get a loan that immediately transact, does a transaction. So I'll explain it by way of example. Think about if there was a, you know, some sort of like digital Bitcoin bank and they issued notes um we'll call them you know fractional bank tokens and tokens the bank says are backed one-to-one -one with bitcoin and you can go and you can look and you can see their account on the blockchain and you can say okay they have 100 bitcoin in their reserves and the question becomes 
what about the liabilities? How, how, how do we know that all of these other notes exist? And we could look at maybe perhaps they're like a side chain and perhaps we can verify that. But there's going to be a lot of banks where just because they have digitally native liabilities doesn't mean that there aren't off-chain liabilities that they might have that you don't know about. So there's going to be ways like they could extend credit to somebody in some form. And, um, and then that once they extend that credit, it's like, oh, they have a liability. It's not on chain. So we don't know. And we're going to need auditors for things like that. So that's going to be a big piece around how the ecosystem builds out is having that form of audit existing. But anyways, so if you have a bank and you're like looking at it, you're like, okay, you know, they're saying that they're backed, but I don't think they're backed. So I am a big hedge fund. And I'm going to speculate that they're not backed. I heard some rumblings. I have, you know, I've got 10 Bitcoins in capital that I use. What I'm going to do is because for me to, I know that they have, I know that they have hundred Bitcoins in reserves. So what I could do is I could buy up hundred Bitcoin worth of their notes. Now I only have 10 Bitcoins, so I can't afford to get all those Bitcoins. So I'm going to need leverage. I'm going to need to borrow money to do this. What I could go do is I could take a flash loan and I could say, the flash loan would say, okay, they have this amount of Bitcoin in reserves. We'll give you a loan for that amount because we know the second you get their tokens and you go to the bank and you go redeem those tokens for the total amount of reserves that they have, the flash loan gets immediately paid back. So because they can verifiably know that you can immediately provide return that liquidity through the loan, they'll allow it to happen. So what you could do is you could take that arbitrage opportunity, immediately redeem it, pay off the flash loan, and then whatever extra capital you have, you can use that to continue to redeem their tokens at the bank and see if you can push them into bankruptcy. So like hedge funds would probably take a short position and then do something like this. Interesting. Um, so that would make it very efficient, a very efficient way to speculate on whether or not somebody's fully backed. And then that kind of draws the question, are we even going to have fractional reserve institutions if we can so efficiently scale leverage to ultimately redeem against a fractional reserve? There's going to be a lot of guys who want to profit off of that and will even be able to exist because of that. So it, it, there, there's a lot more that gets complicated around that, but that's kind of like a general idea. Hmm. Wow, that seems like a huge threat to the existing system. Do you see that? Like, how do you see that playing out in the short term? Or is that something that only plays out in the, in the medium or much longer term? I think it's much longer. I mean, we need to have, number one, we need these institutions to exist in like a purely digitally native way for that to even happen. You know, right now we saw how the unbacked liabilities of a lot of these CFI crypto institutions went. Um, but it needs to be like purely digitally native for like, you know, that example that I'm talking about to work. So it's kind of like if we have some, you know, the concept of like Fediment, for example, and then there's, it's an open protocol. People can go in, they can utilize it to create like a federation. And the question is, is will certain companies set up banks that are ultimately issuing more notes than the actual Bitcoin that gets sent to them through their protocols? And the, the trade-off to all this is, and here's the huge theoretical debate, and this is what I love about what's happening right now, is as all these things emerge, say, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, as all these things emerge, we're going to have like practical examples to answer some very, very big, important economic questions that have been the subject of debate for, you know, centuries. And, and we're going to say like, okay, if we do have these very efficient mechanisms, is the idea that you know the uh, like the keynesian idea that like credit 
and having, you know, the expansion of credit in a form of more elastic money versus inelastic money. Is that something that actually is true? How is it going to look if we have a perfectly inelastic form of money? Will institutions need to emerge that make our money more elastic by issuing that concept of fiduciary media that creates monetary elasticity. And I'll, I'll, I'll describe that. So like, if we have assume an economy that is in, you know, we'll just there's there's an economy and they have some sort of major crisis that occurs, not due to anything financial, purely a natural disaster. So like they have, you know, some huge hurricane come in, a bunch of their oil refineries are set up on that coast, destroy has this huge you know, destruction of that capital base. Now there's this huge economic shock that occurs because there's a major supply shortage of refined oil. You know, if we have like an economy like that, then the question becomes, if we have a perfectly inelastic form of money, what does that mean? Well, we need to build a bunch of new refineries and we need to do that quickly. And there's going to be effectively like a form of like financial price gouging that you could argue would occur. It's just like interest rates would spike because now the demand for credit to build out this very important necessity within the world would cause this economic shock. So like the problem that critics have of inelastic money is that it doesn't respond well to economic shocks. And that's the purpose of credit where people can say like, okay, well, rather than, um, you know, actually getting that, Bitcoin for you, if this economy runs on Bitcoin, then rather than getting that Bitcoin directly, we'll just have people, this, you know, all these oil refiners, they can just take on a ton of credit that'll help them build things back up. They can weather the storm and then they can pay that off with their future earnings. And, and the idea is that like credit provides that elasticity to an economy. Now, does that need to come directly through a monetary issuance? Because credit doesn't have to be yeah, it doesn't a part seem of like our money. Yeah. Right. So so there's a lot of ways that that could come, but technically within a banking system, the issuance of credit directly is a little bit harder than the issuance of fiduciary media. So that's kind of the distinction on does it need to be a part of our money or does it just need to be credit that's issued directly? And I'll say like the difference, the, a good way to think about it is when you're a company and you want to raise stock, it's much easier when you already have that stock issued and you just can take some shares out of your treasury and float them into the market yeah. versus doing an IPO. IPO yeah, takes course. a lot longer. So it's a similar concept. If you were to have private credit respond in that situation, it's harder to extend private credit as opposed to just banks could immediately issue fiduciary media and they could help them weather that storm very rapidly. So it's, it's a little bit more efficient. And, and that's, you know, whether or not that actually is just trivial, I'm not really certain of yet, Yeah, but, but that's, I mean, I just, that, yeah, it's kind of the trade-off. Yeah. That's super interesting. I mean, the other side of that, of course, is that is the idea that is put forward by a lot of Bitcoiners that you know when you have this the ability to create free flowing credit, you know people tend to do so, and then you know that creates these these sort of skewed or distorted markets. Or do you see that as a a different issue entirely? Yeah, no, totally. Price distortions. You know, if we're operating based off of prices, that's the most perfect form of information we can have when we distort the money supply. That we're impacting that, and that's you know major argument against having credit issuance be a part of the money supply. But it it, it is true that credit itself affects pricing mechanisms regardless of whether or not it's a part of the money supply. And I think that with the the trade off is. There's ideas of what a perfect market looks like, and there's the trade-off that we'll have to say is like, okay, do we have perfect price, pricing information, or is credit something that people actually want to use? 
And it's not really about whether or not you theoretically think it is. It's the fact that it emerges in the market and the fact that the market can choose. And like, that's kind of a, on that point, that's kind of where I come out on all these debates is like, I'm more trying to concern myself of what I think will emerge and what practical considerations will exist to allow that to emerge rather than what's, you know, theoretically ideal, just because what we'll see, I, I believe what's more important is freedom of choice above everything else. Now I can have a hardline Austrian stance and I can say, you know, like we need to set hard limits. And some of the major Austrian thinkers, I think really had to backpedal on this one because what we do notice is that, you know, to your point earlier, we do have credit that emerges through the form of like fiduciary media throughout history. And like, you know, Mises, for example, he was a proponent of saying, you know, we should probably have that outlawed and uh, there should be some sort of regulatory standards. Now it's, it's not quite that terse because within the context of what he's saying, it was in a specific scenario. But I think that nonetheless, the point remains, you know, Austrians were aware that these things don't emerge privately. So therefore the solution is violence to prevent it from emerging, which I don't really follow on that line of logic that's not something that i'm a proponent of i think that if the people want fractional reserve give them you know let them do whatever the fuck they want i'm going to opt into a full reserve bank and uh, and, and that's the whole point is that there's i think it's much better to allow freedom of choice and for there to be consequences of that freedom of choice than to allow people to control it with violence so it's really more of a question of government at that point it's so interesting i have a i have a question what Theoretically, like, and I, I'm not talking the literal difference, but what is the difference between a fractional reserve bank, a full reserve bank, and then like one of these ridiculous Ponzi's that we see pop up that offer you yields like a, a Celsius versus then like a self-custody platform? Hey, it, sorry, has, can, you re, can you repeat that? Uh, you broke out. What is the difference between like a fractional reserve bank, a full reserve bank, and then a custody service like a Celsius that'll offer you higher yields by using Celsius, i.e. fractional reserve bank versus like a no yield type of bank or, or wallet service like a strike, for example, or strike to moon wallet, for example, full reserve. Yeah. So like, I think that, so with Celsius, they are, and you know, I don't, I know bits and pieces about the situation. I don't like have a holistic view on all of it, but you know, they were, they weren't operating necessarily as a bank in terms of like the economics of what they were doing. You know, they were obviously the, uh, they were obviously taking on credit and risks that they could not repay. And, 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 and in a sense, that's kind of like, you know, quote unquote fractional reserve, but it's really like, I think those terms are kind of more reserved for a specific scenario where we actually do have banking light note, note issuance. But anyway, you know, it's like any, any company can take on too much credit and then can also ultimately take that capital that they just borrowed. And then they invested in assets that are productive or assets that provide a rate of return of their financial assets. And that may not work out. And they have a fixed liability that they have to repay and then they ultimately fail. So I, I'd say, you know, it's kind of more in line with that, but I don't know enough details to really say like, I, I think that there was a bit of both going on in terms of the, how they were running their entire system. But, you know, certainly with the way that the promises they were making and how they had things set up, it was, uh, you know, it was like fraudulent in a lot of ways. And, you know, what was interesting is how I remember one of my friends who emailed me who had money in Voyager 
was saying that they were providing some sort of promise that they had like FDIC insurance and that that was actually like on their website at one point for people. And then it subsequently was removed, which like, you know, that's just pure fraud. I, I, if there's anything that surprised me more this year, it's the level of risk that these guys took on. I, I was blown away at how stupid it was and how I, I just couldn't imagine if I was in their shoes and I had, you know, literally won the lottery. I'm in this industry where I just capitalized a billion dollar business within a matter of years. Like you're set for life. Like why take risk? Why not just pare back down? Why not, you know, take some money off the table, but like the stupidity of some of these guys, even just from their own self interest, it was so short term. Yeah. The hubris. I I, I couldn't even believe it. We were talking, we're talking earlier about how the, what was his title? He was the head of policy and regulatory affairs at Celsius earlier this year, just got hired by JP Morgan Chase to head their digital assets regulatory policy. Division. Yeah, I saw that announcement and yeah, you know, to be expected. Like, that, Wait, that, how so? I mean, that's like, I was just railing against it. I mean, it, it seems insane. Well, I mean, if you're like, if I was in his shoes, well, I, I insane in terms of like, you mean the fact that he would go to JP Morgan or? No, the fact that they would hire him, like he basically oversaw this regulatory environment or this regulatory policies at Celsius that, you know, where Celsius did terribly. Although I guess the flip side of that is he managed to navigate it and no one's gone to jail. So maybe that's why they hired him. Right. Yeah, I guess. I, yeah, exactly. I don't know enough details around like the civil and like criminal penalties that are going to emerge out of all of it. But yeah, I'd say like, I mean, I, I guess more from, from JP Morgan's perspective, it's kind of like, well, who even has experience doing this? It's like, Oh, well the guy who grew a big company and fucked it up does, and he's looking for a job. It's probably more along those lines. It's like, there's this kind of like limited experience within these ecosystems. But yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's pretty funny that they would hire somebody with that amount of, you know, tarnishment to their brand. Hmm. Interesting. So, Q, a second ago, it looked like you were about to say something and then I cut you off. No? Okay. I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about the uh, the announcement out of Dorsey's Blue Sky Initiative? The AT Protocol Federated uh, Social Networking? Oh, yeah. That's something I, I don't have any thoughts yet. I want to read into it more. I think it's interesting. This is one of the big problems that, yeah, because I just retweeted that actually, because I, I really think that people need to dig into that. And I think that Dorsey's probably, you know, very well aligned to be the guy that pulls it off. But this idea of the decentralized social network, if that gets solved, wow, we just solved a ton of problems in the world. And, and yeah, I just want to dig into the technicalities of it. I mean, like the key, the key thing is I, I think the key constraint is basically it will it actually work with consumer adoption that a very small price to pay is worth it for autonomy and ownership of data and will that actually work for consumer demand which i think is something that people within the bitcoin space kind of overestimate because we are that demographic of people who is ready to do that but you know you have to wonder whether or not all the sheep and the followers are ultimately going to be interested in doing something like that one day but yeah it's kind of like there's this conflict of interest that exists within current social media between the the publishers and the advertisers and and the platform and if we can solve that conflict of interest through the centralization, which ultimately means somebody has to pay for something, um, 
is it worth it? And I think a lot of it's solved from the idea of, will you pay to watch somebody to get access to somebody else tweeting? Will you do the, you know, will this podcasting 2.0 trend really get to the scale where this can be a large scale thing? Yeah, it's just a question of will people pay for it? And if they can make the user experience enough, the profitability for content creators high enough, and, you know, ultimately the quality of content great enough that people will pay small amounts to have it in small proportions. And it can be a small enough amount of like their personal budgets. You know, if social media costs you 1% of your income a year or something, and you get a lot of value out of that, it could be interesting. But when they're, when their trade-off is free for advertisements and for, you know, uh, whatever they're being shilled and for lack of privacy and all that, then I don't know. It's just like, I don't have a lot of faith in people and that's what concerns me, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I share your your concerns. I, I also do not have very much faith in people. And I one of the patterns that, you know, before I was, you know, full-time Bitcoin, I was in the software engineering space. And one of the things that I have seen again and again and again, and I think it will, or I worry that it will play out here as well, is not necessarily with blue sky, but in the on the axis of like, will people be willing to pay for a thing that creates a better user experience versus, you know, accept just having, you know, ads force fed down their, their, you know, sensory systems. There's this pattern where there'll be an app that comes out or a service. You can take your pick, you know, Reddit, Hulu, uh, whatever else, Twitter even, that will be really, really compelling. And then either because the people that were originally behind the app step out or for other reasons, for financial reasons, the something that was really amazing, an incredible information source, then gets kind of perverted almost. And it can happen slowly or very rapidly where suddenly advertisers and monetization becomes the focus. And then the quality of the systems just degrades very, very rapidly. And I feel like that just happens again and again and again. And to your point, I think it's because people are willing to accept this this, these ads. And I've never really understood it. I'm a very distractible person. And so I am, I hate oh, seeing ads. Yeah, I know. Right. It makes me so angry when I have to like, you know, go through Twitter and I have to like scroll past all these promoted tweets, but I guess most people don't seem to, or they, they don't think they mind very much. I don't really know where I'm going with this other than to just say that I agree that people don't seem to track on the value of having a, you know, ad free or non-monetized experience as much as I would expect them to. Right. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that'll also probably solve it too, which I think is interesting about Elon's idea with, you know, X company after he buys Twitter, the more holistic your social media experience becomes, it's probably easier to get people to put income into it. It's kind of like, you know, everybody's paying what for a Netflix subscription every single year. And it's just like your social media to you is probably you know, for most people, way more valuable than that. And people would probably be willing to pay a lot more. And if there's a way to holistically combine it into something where it's just like, oh, I don't have to, you know, do all this like individual payments for, you know, individual things that I'm subscribing to. Maybe there's a way where I can do it at like a kind of like a, you know, I don't know, like package level or something that that could be something that simplifies the decision making for the consumer and might make it something that's a lot simpler. Like, oh, I pay 15 bucks a month and, you know, I get a, I get everything else that comes with that. And that, that might be a bit more valuable. I don't, I, I, I don't really know though, but yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that this will be like so incredibly important and the way that it's going to change information and politics if it's achieved and 
you know, ultimately the way information is disseminated will be one of the coolest experiments in history. I mean, what information is going to rise to the top if we did have a truly decentralized social media platform and what's going to persist? And will these arguments that like misinformation is a natural, you know, kind of like tragedy of the commons that emerges within social environments and we need watchmen to protect us from that, you know, will that be true? We just, yeah, we'll, we'll find out if that emerges. Well said. Hmm. I'm curious, Eric, if you feel as though there's a degree of, like, yes, I understand when I hear this case of people don't want ads and that ad experience diminishes the overall experience of just accessing the internet. Maybe I'm just a cheap piece of shit, but like when it comes to social media in particular, it's the fact that it is free. Like if I were to have to pay for that, do you not feel that that's a level of friction that could in turn actually decrease overall social media usage? Or is it just so ingrained in our society and culture today that like we're, we're not going to shake social media, even if we were to just add like the same way a drug dealer will just like get you on the hook, give you a free sample at first. And then like, <laughs> well, then wait, they wait, got hold on, you. Hold on. I also want to like be We got the free sample version. We got the Facebooks, the Twitters, the yep. Instagrams, TikToks. We got the free version. But now you want to hang out with like your friends still? Like you got to show well, no, it's just it's a, it's a dollar a month. And then before you know it, like when it's our kids, it's like we're paying $100 a month for them to have access to social media. Like Eric, our kids are just screwed is the point I'm trying to make. No, 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 wait, wait. I also want to be clear, sorry Eric, before you jump in. It Having ads or you know promoted content in media streams like there that's a reality of life, right? You have to be able to figure out some way to fund whatever you know service you're providing. That's just how it works. In order to have a team, you, you know, or, or the resources, they have to come from somewhere essentially. But I think that, and I think that there are ways to do that that are, if not elegant, like aren't egregious. And then I think that there are ways of doing that where it becomes super egregious, and it's really hard to strike that balance, but. It can be done. So I'm not saying that there, you know, I there should be no ads or no way of creating, you know, revenue streams for services and systems that cost money to operate and require content creators to produce. But I just I think that in many situations it's it, it becomes really egregious. So yeah, yeah, and I I agree. I think that so it, let me I guess I kind of glossed over a lot of this, but it's like we could have these ecosystems emerge and there's you know ads. It's just more like the centralization you know centralization provides efficiencies in a lot of ways so like if everybody if we remove the centralization from the system then that means that we're going to be creating redundancy of the system in some form all those servers all those decisions made at facebook you know all the software development all those things that happen you know that is pushed to the ultimate content creators in some form if we had a decentralized system which ultimately are passing along those costs to the consumer in some form. And, and that's kind of the idea is that we've created some sort of redundancy. It's going to be a relatively less inefficient system, but it's going to be much more free. And uh, will people ultimately want, you know, that means it would have to get to a scale that's large enough to ultimately be competitive with the incumbent, you know, web two type system. And, and that's like, that's like the key distinction here is, yeah, well, I mean, we're go we'll have ads, but if I'm an advertiser and I'm going to go into like this system, I'm going to talk to some guy who is a, 
you know, content creator on the, um, you know, blue sky platform and, you know, his costs are much higher. So he's looking for sponsors to do X, Y, and Z. Well, are the users going to be there where they even give a shit? Cause if they don't give a shit, they're not going to move in which case the economic model might not make sense. So like, and how would that adoption ultimately be driven to get it to a scale to where these economic models make sense? And we do get the advertisement dollars that start to move into like a new decentralized social media platform. I don't know. I feel like there needs to be some sort of like major crux that gets figured out that will ultimately make people make that shift. And I don't think that that's likely to come from people hating the government a ton. Uh, maybe it is, but that, you know, we've seen all these things happen. And we never see the adoption shift. You know, we've seen all the other Twitters that have emerged and we've seen like the conservative party try to bootstrap those, which is, you know, a pretty powerful organization that's trying to do that. And, and you know, we just never really saw that adoption come to fruition. So it's kind of like, it, you know, maybe there, there has to be some sort of missing piece that gets figured out with this new solution that really makes that adoption and the changes shift. And I don't really know what that will be. That's fair. I really think our society would be far more developed if we just stuck to MySpace. Like an entire generation would have learned to code. And we probably would, like all of us would have stumbled across Bitcoin that much sooner. Because if Tom from MySpace figured out Bitcoin, he would have told all of his friends. And Tom was always one of my friends on MySpace. So therefore, I would have learned about Bitcoin that much sooner. See, Pete, everything's about Bitcoin. Eric, I want to now talk to you about, you know, probably the most talked about person just overall, not only in Bitcoin land, but in Normie land. And that is yay. What are your thoughts? Like how, what was your initial thought when you heard the news that JP Morgan, which allowed Jeffrey Epstein to stay banked with them for five years after he was convicted, decided to throw out Kanye West and his, I believe it was, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think it was only $1.170 million dollars in the account or 240 million, something in that range, something between 100 and 240 million dollars. They just said, No, you can't bank with us because you're 120 million. Look, I mean, yay is yay is being marginalized, <laughs> and uh, and you know, I, I, I don't know, I think like, yeah, I mean, he, he's seeing the power of it, he's connected to all these people who are kind of on the cusp of this Bitcoin movement, I think he's obviously going to become a part of it at some point, which I'm I'm pretty psyched about. I mean, it'd be so badass if like Ye ended up making an announcement that he bought a huge dip. And he's like, I own, you know, like 100 Bitcoins now or whatever he does. But I see something like that potentially coming, particularly with the people that he, he's friends with. I, I hope that he's smart enough to not get caught up in all the other bullshit. And he sees like the real value, especially because he just had a significant amount of wealth, you know, kicked out of his bank. And then he sees that censorship and that'll ultimately guide him towards Bitcoin. Because that's, you know, with my other guy, Mike, that's been one of the big issues is he's Mike.soul or whatever on Twitter. And, uh, and you know, it's tough. I wish that wasn't the case, but we'll see if he comes around. I think Mike's smart enough to get there too at some point, but, you know, we're going to have to start some sort of movement to get Mike Tyson into it, get him to read my book. And one of, one of my goals, I would love to have him or Kanye write a foreword to my book in a revised edition at some point. That would be just the shit. But, and I'd let them write whatever they want because they'd say a bunch of crazy shit. And I'd just be like, yeah, like, 
let's put it in print. That would be that would be the right thing to do. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I'm I'm a patriot, and so of course, unedited. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd, well, I, I mean, the pitch would just be like, okay, so here's here's the thing on Mike and Kanye in the book. Number one, I mean, the reason the idea emerged was like when I was kind of like tying out all the chapters and it was getting close to finish. I was like, oh, like I forgot to put quotes at the beginning of all the chapters. And like, that's, you know, something people do. So I was like, what quotes do I want to play? And I was like, I, I like at first I was thinking like, oh, I could do like these economists or something. And I was like, oh, that's 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 kind of fucking stupid. I don't want to do that. And I was just like, who are the my favorite, most quotable people? And I was like, Mike and Kanye. And, and that's kind of how I started at it. But the reason I like felt comfortable doing it was uh, I think that like they're, they're very unique people who have been blatantly honest and obviously say dumb things or have done dumb things. And I, I, you know, I think this whole like people who have, you know, view the quotes of some people versus other people based on some premise of like moral relativism, I, you know, like pe- people have a hard time saying like, if somebody's ever done something that's like bad in their lives and they're famously known for it, people have a very hard time like distinguishing the good they've done. And and that's what I liked about these guys is like, you know, you have a guy like Mike who at an incredibly young age went from like literally living in poverty to becoming one of the top athletes in the world, like literally rise to being the best in the world at what he did. And he didn't give a fuck about anything the whole time. He was honest. He wasn't like going into the media trying to portray himself in a certain way. He was honest through and through throughout everything to the point where like, I mean, he literally just trolled the media for a period of his life with it. And like, and I respect the shit out of that. I really like people that are that honest. And, and that was another thing with Kanye. I was like, yeah, Kanye said a bunch of like crazy shit. I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. He's also said some really smart shit. That's like brutally honest that literally no other rapper would ever say publicly. And like, that's something I respected about him too. And, uh, and that's what I like about what he's doing. And like, yeah, it's just like, maybe Kanye, maybe you don't have to take a stab at the Jews when you're trying to make a point. Maybe it would probably go better for you if you didn't do that. But I mean, he's legitimately saying what he thinks and like, and I respect people who legitimately say what they think. So like that, that's kind of the rationale behind all of it. Interesting. Top five favorite Kanye songs. Oh shit. Number one, I gotta go with Gorgeous. Okay, so have you ever seen the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy short film? Of course. Of course. Oh yeah. So I'll I'll probably probably watch that once a year. But like honestly, that was that was my uh yeah, I've never had to answer this before that, but that honestly might be my favorite album of his. And oh, uh, you know what? I actually take it back. Gorgeous isn't my number one. Drive slow is my number one. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Drive Slow fan. I've been listening to that like most of my life, I think. But all right, Ultralight Beam. I'm a huge fan of that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and all right, what do I got? I got two more. Choose mm-hmm. carefully. I know. This is important. Through the Wire. Through the Wire is cool. And what's badass is like what that song's about when he was like, finishing the album after he like got his jaw broken and his jaw was had a bunch of wires in it and he was strapped up and he finished it all so like that's you know the point of the song is like i spit it through the wire and he was just like i'm gonna finish this thing after he got all fucked up from a car wreck which is pretty cool yeah that one's that that's a good one oh and then uh, everything i am that's a yeah that's it that's probably above through the wire yeah okay okay excellent list I've got another Bitcoin question for you. 
Oh, also. But it I has guess, to be related to Kanye West. Oh, it's not. Yeah. It's no, not. That, although, then, although, do you want to tell the people about the the hat that they can buy? The incredibly important, deeply Bitcoin related hat they can buy from I, our... Uh, I absolutely do. I bought both colors this morning when I saw that. I was like, <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah, that's Let's a go. Great idea. Great idea. I bet there's, you guys sell a ton of those. There's Love a hat that. you can get from our, our store, <laughs> our meme <laughs> store, which is... Kanye West's Satoshi Nakamoto hat, or you know, uh, a derivation thereof. Use promo code BM Live so you don't have to pay full price the way Eric did. Fuck, man! I should have waited Sorry, two Eric. hours. The second I saw it, I just like you know, smash by, smash by. Yeah. It's fine. You have royalties coming in, so you're good. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you. Uh, you have published a number of articles on Bitcoin Magazine, which for those who may not have read them. I highly encourage you to do so. As you can tell from this conversation, Eric is extremely eloquent and just as good of a writer as he is a wordsmith. Speaking wordsmith, these are words that make sense. Don't worry about it. My question to you, Eric, is you've written a lot about sort of trying to educate people about sort of the, some of the fundamental aspects of Bitcoin from a technical perspective, from a financial perspective, other than your own writings, because you can't say those, what are some of your favorite resources that you direct people to around Bitcoin? when you're trying to get them into it? Yeah, so I've actually got on my website, which is just like linked on my Twitter. But if you go to my website, I have a tab resources and I have some things listed. There's uh, in terms of like Bitcoin only, because I cover, you know, Bitcoin, economics, finance, and then like kind of got some miscellaneous stuff I like in there too. But, you know, I'd say that like the the majority of my monitoring is kind of like world events in terms of like what I'm following for like Bitcoin only content, obviously Bitcoin mag, but in terms of like thinkers, I guess is probably better because I get most of that from Twitter. You know, Alan, Alan Farrington and I are working on some research together right now. Alan is, Alan is just a very clear thinker and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the work that he does. And I'd recommend anybody to read the things that he says and let you, me you should get the kanye west hat and alan farrington's book bitcoin is venice at the bitcoin magazine store <laughs> yeah and my book too but i think i don't know i'm trying to think of who else it's funny because like i'm so scrambled when i'm on twitter i really well, like you uh, shit so much, bro. yeah i know i kind of <laughs> need to like slow down with it i'll like have my days where i just like go off on shit posting for like an hour and i can tell like <laughs> it's it's kind of funny because I like half of my followers are like a lot of like older guys and like I don't think they know what the fuck I'm talking about. And I'm kind of like, all right, I need to get a little bit more better content mixed in here. Never change, strong Eric. disagree, strong disagree. You gotta keep people on their toes, you know, mentally, physically, otherwise, you know, what are we doing here? But also I also love Alan Farrington. He was he participated in two of the panels at Bitcoin Amsterdam, which were fantastic. I think both of them are up now. Yeah, they are. Both of them are up now on our on our YouTube. There's a, a playlist for those who would like to check them out on our Bitcoin Magazine YouTube titled Bitcoin Amsterdam. And Alan Farrington is his talks are there. Also, really quickly, Eric, one one last thing for the audience. Rumble, it's up there. Please feel free to subscribe. YouTube, subscribe down below. And if you're listening at the podcast to this podcast later, A, we go live on YouTube. B, you should make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating so other people can discover us. Thank you. Eric, back to you. I want to get a sense from you just, we've been in the depth of a bear market now for this entire year. And yet 
Bitcoin and innovation around Bitcoin continues to grow. We see hash rate reaching new highs. We see difficulty readjusting and now pushing higher and higher. You met you mentioned updates like Tarot coming through. What are some of the most exciting things about Bitcoin tech that you think is going to really be a catalyst during this next bull run? Like what are the, what is something being developed today? Every new user come 2024, 2025 is going to be overly familiar with and be interacting with. Interesting. Well, I mean, to a lot of my points earlier. Okay. So I guess here's kind of a way that I could break it down. I think that, you know, when to the points that I was describing earlier about Taro, Fediment, how some of these technologies can create like the institutions we need to really like bring Bitcoin to the level of like global utility and scalability. I think that there's kind of, so there's this concept of like irreducible complexity. And, uh, and you know, that's the idea. It's the first time I actually learned about it when I was reading, I was reading like this book about evolution. It was actually Richard Dawkins, but it's kind of like he, he, he described like, so it's interesting. So like with a lot of arguments that are made in like religions are based on this concept of irreducible complexity and like, okay, well, you know, if, you know, we didn't have a designer who created the world, then, you know, how, how are eyes created? And like, how, how is something so complex, the process of iteration over evolution? And there's like points made to how like something like that can, it, it would be impossible to ultimately evolve into that type of form. And like one example that I thought was really interesting, and I'm going to butcher it because I read this so long ago, but it was there the, the frog leg and the way that it ultimately would evolve over time is something that there, there couldn't, because of how, what's the word, how extreme that ultimate development was, evolutionary biologists couldn't explain explain gradual steps that ultimately would have led to something like a frog leg emerging. And there was like one type of frog where they found proof that these frogs would, they actually developed and they evolved over time, this form of like scaffolding, you know, similar to how like you build up scaffolding before you're building a building and then you remove the scaffolding once the building's finally in place. It allows you to get things to the next step before you can get to completion and then you remove it after. And there was like frog that evolved kind of with that. And the idea is like this concept of irreducible complexity is like there are certain things that I think similar in like the way that Bitcoin grows that aren't going to get to that point of full functionality and where we can really realize their full utilities without some form of scaffolding that's put in place that ultimately allows us to get there. Um, so I think like, you know, something that's going to be much more immediate that's emerging over the next few years. And, you know, this may not be as relevant to like the, uh, you know, U.S. community, but I think what Galloway is doing in their community banking, I think that those types of services and the open source platforms are building out is kind of like, I think that bridge that's going to get us to ultimately this like digitally native ecosystem. And, and I think that, so like this, this vision of Bitcoin's future that's digitally native, I think is kind of like in terms of consumer adoption is irreducibly complex in a lot of forms. And, and we need services kind of like a Galloway and others that are emerging that can create that high utility that bring people into the ecosystem system that'll ultimately bridge into this purely digitally native system in 20, 30 years. Interesting. Are you, are you intentionally leaving a Fetty out of that? Or do you mean like Galloway, Fetty, everything that they're kind of 
Oh yeah, yeah, Fetty, Fetty too. So I think that like Galloway is a bit more of a holistic solution in certain ways, and I think that like things can emerge on top of Fetty that'll get us there. But Galloway specifically, because you know Fetty, Fetty is an extreme privacy solution, and, and it's going to take a while to get there. Galloway is kind of already up and running, and it doesn't. Yeah, have of course, it's, it's with Bitcoin Beach. But it, actually, yeah, can right. you define for the audience exactly what you mean when you say Galloway and what's happening with Bitcoin Beach and how it's been implemented? Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, it was kind of like with Bitcoin Beach, it was kind of like the uh, proof of concept for Galloway. And, uh, and you know, they went down there and they said, okay, well, if we can create this circular Bitcoin economy, that's going to help these people. And then they did, and then it worked. And that was kind of their proof of concept. So now they're like expanding that idea of like community banking to, you know, all these other markets that they're looking into right now, the specifics of which I'm not totally certain of, but like a lot of these South American economies is what they're starting to build out in. And, um, and yeah, and they're they're basically like an open source protocol, and they're providing a way for if you want to set up a way for to run like community banking within you know a smaller town, or you want to be a developer and you want to build out your own community bank very quickly, they provide the tools and infrastructure that you'll need to do that. They also provide it in a hosted way where they do most of themselves. So it allows people to one get in through a hosted way, and they say, okay, we. Were really like this. This is valuable. It's working for us. And then a developer is involved and they can build it out and actually run it based on you know, all of their own infrastructure. So that, that's kind of the idea that's happening. And while that has a lot of trust trade-offs that people in the Bitcoin community are against in a lot of ways, there, there's two points to that. Number one, to the point I made earlier around like bridging to the next future, well, these things are relevant. And the risk that people have with that is, well, does it ever become a bridge to the destination we had in mind, or do we bridge our way to a, a destination that's centralized and not as and permissioned that we don't want? So that's that's kind of one of the key risks that we'd be considering from that. But number two, if we do get to this final vision of global Bitcoin standard, there will always be institutions and people that will use centralized services or have trust-based services in some form. The question is whether or not we have enough self-sovereign people that acts as a deterrence mechanism against financialization and moral hazard that'll emerge from it, which Bitcoin enables for us to do. As long as we have services where people can be totally self-sovereign, the question becomes what percentage of assets really need to be peer-to-peer self-sovereign to be a deterrence mechanism where banks, if they're ever like, oh, we're going to take advantage of people, People can say, fuck you, we're going to pull our money out and go back into a peer-to-peer operating mode, which you can't do in our current system and really haven't been able to for all practical purposes throughout history. So that's the key deterrence mechanism. The question is, how big does that economy need to be and how much functionality does it need to have so that it is a capable alternative for people who don't trust banks? And then, so like that, that that's, uh, yeah, anyways, that's what I say. So what else? What else has got you excited or, you know, provokes anxiety? What do you think the largest attack vector is? The most significant attack vector is right now in uh, Bitcoin. Yeah. And I, I, I think it was, I remember I got asked this question a year ago and it's, it's interesting how it is starting to kind of come to fruition a bit, but it was always the bait and switch strategy by institutions. That was definitely the easiest one. And I think that- What do you mean have, by that? So yeah, so like by governments that are ultimately getting involved in a, like will CBDCs be something that gets issued through Ethereum? And 
that that's definitely one of the biggest attacks and like Bitcoin's designed to be resistant to it. But, you know, how will financial institutions comply? How much Bitcoin will people own that is not real Bitcoin and is part of a government compatible wallet that also issues a CBDC? And we slowly and gradually just get pushed through the ecosystem into this, you know, anything but Bitcoin type environment. It was Ben. Why can't I think of his name of Epsilon Theory? Ben, ben Hunt. Yeah, Ben Hunt with his Bitcoin TM article that he wrote. I think that was about a year and a half ago. I think that that's just, every, everybody should go read that. I think he's a great thinker. So just search even, Bitcoin TM exclamation. Even mark. with all of his nonsense around like green coin or leaf coin or whatever. Oh, I guess I haven't even seen that. I, I oh, all man. I know. Well, well, well t- tell me about it. He just went off the deep end. He basically, you know, he for a long time was kind of like, I think that, you know, quote unquote, blockchain technology is really interesting. I'm just not sure it's Bitcoin. And then finally, during the peak of the bull market, he was like, I've got the solution. It's I think it's called like plant coin. And the whole thing is like proof of plant. It's just like a ridiculous shit coin that like has no basis in reality. It was just I, I personally was extremely disappointed because like you, I, I have thought of him as an overly wordy, but ultimately, um, you know, good thinker, and you you should just go check out the the the, the shit going you tried to launch during the bull market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that that'll be another area that I think emerges in shitcoin universe that i actually think will be something that draws quite a bit of capital to it i bet that i bet carbon credits are going to start getting monetized on ethereum in some form i bet we're going to see that and it's going to be it's because it actually makes a lot of sense because that market's very fucked up in the traditional world there's all these disparate markets of issuance and they're not as fungible and it's kind of like otc and it's very inefficient there's fraud that exists i bet that some of that's going to start getting tokenized on ethereum and that's going to be like some huge big narrative for the ethereum platform and it being green and ultimately it it will attract a lot of capital and value and there's a lot of people that want to brand themselves particularly major corporations around that narrative Mm. i I definitely see that as something being a, a big catalyst to ethereum in the near future but interesting. Like, wouldn't couldn't you make a case saying that their merge to proof of stake was an attempt in doing exactly that, and that has, at least by today's standards, seems to have fallen flat and been just a whole nothing burger. Oh yeah, I agree. I I, I think the distinction is that there's legitimate there like there is a large market for carbon credits that is very inefficient right now and there's all these problems that are from it and you know obviously it is the polar opposite of anything bitcoin it is a cooperative agreement by governments of you know forced taxation in a new form that's being globally instrumented and that is all of that is true but it is a very large market because of coercion and and i think that that is value that can be moved that once once people start trading carbon credits on ethereum in some form that's going to be a lot of value that gets attracted because there is an opportunity to make that a lot more efficient and that actually would solve some problems for the market and and i think that that's something that we'll probably see in the near future and that's going to be like the next step in why they're green and look at look at what we're doing for the carbon credits in the paris accord Cool. So I just want to make sure we have this quote ready for Bitcoin Twitter. It says here, Eric Yates Yates believes that the future of carbon credits will be on Ethereum and it will send ETH to the moon. Is that uh, the right (laughs) right quote? Please God, no. Please God, no. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's, that's... 
Uh, no, and my point in saying that, uh, let me be clear, because I didn't really speak to the other side of it. My point in saying that is like, because <laughs> now I sound like a fucking piece of shit. But so Those are your my, words, not mine. My, my point in saying that is just for like people to be aware of the narratives that I think are going to emerge. And like, ultimately, I think it's probably going to continue developing that direction. We're going to continue to see that division. And then, you know, all, all the same criticisms that Bitcoiners have always had of Ethereum still remain. And, uh, and yeah, but just be prepared for that. I bet that happens. So to be perfectly clear, you are in fact <laughs> shitting on Ethereum and you hate ESG. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm not like, yeah, I hate ESG. It's, it, it's, I, it's funny because it's something that eventually I have to at some point since I've been involved in Bitcoin. It was the environmental climate change narrative was something I always ignored just because whenever there's like a highly politicized topic, I tend to kind of ignore it because it's all bullshit information that creates division between two sides typically unless you really want to spend the time to get deep and i just re didn't really care and then now that i'm in this like you know it, it comes up so much that i was like i never like fully got my head around what i think about climate change but i think that like yeah there's changes we can witness changes occurring the question is how do we determine causality and then how do we infringe on property rights based on how we determine that causality and i haven't like done all the digging to like really where I come out on that. But the idea of like globally, like this idea of ESG is just controlling resources at a global level, allowing governments to cooperate in a way to do that. It's just incremental, incremental tax revenue that they receive. And, and more importantly, it's coordinated, justified way to control the property of major institutions. And that's bad. That's really bad. Well, I look forward to you finishing that report and then coming here and telling us all about it. Because as we as we established at the beginning of the show, P cannot read, refuses to read. So you must read him this report out loud. As Another you have read, Cannon enters the the tomb of P. But uh, my friends, this has been an awesome show, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. I'm sad that we did not get to see your basement. The last time you were on, you had that whiteboard, but there was like a weird quilt like just like cruising on top of it. So I'm glad to see that you've got it more exposed now. Love to have you back on again when, when uh, we can see you visually the entire time. But I want to remind everybody that you can use code BMLIVE to buy tickets to Bitcoin 2023 if you're not already. As we talked about earlier, it's going to be even more incredible than Bitcoin 2022. Also, of course, we have the print edition, which is about to become a collector's item because the new one is going to come out, the Orange Party issue, very soon. Pick one up while you still can. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.